All right. Turn with me to the book of Philippians. If you've been here in the past, you know that we have covered the first chapter of Philippians, and we're now in chapter 2. And we'll be starting in verse 5 this morning. Let me pray. Father, we thank you again, Lord, for your glory, for revealing yourself to us, for even allowing us to approach you, for making yourself known to your creation, God. It's, it is a privilege and an honor to make us to make yourself known through your word, and we are thankful for that this morning, God. We're thankful for the sacrifice that you made on our behalf, and I pray, Lord, that that would be elevated this morning, that your sacrifice, your work, your glory, your mercy would be elevated, would be exalted, and that we would see that with a clearer light, and that it would help us to know how to go forth in this world, help us to know how to go forth with our friends and our family and acquaintances, Lord, that we would be able to proclaim your love to them in a world that so desperately needs it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're in chapter 2, verse 5, but remember the first four verses of this chapter were largely devoted to a selfless attitude. I'm going to read those first four verses just as a reminder. Therefore, if there, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Being of one accord, having one mind, considering others as more important than yourself. And now as we look at these next five verses, we are going to see a description of who Christ is as our example of that. Okay, so we, we got, here's what you do. And now what we're going to see now is the why, here's why you do it, and here's how you do it, and here's who you do it through. And the answer to all that is Christ, but we're going to see that fleshed out a little bit. So look at verse 5. It says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Now, so what is this mind that he's talking about is what was described in those first four verses. This is the selfless mind. Let this selfless mind be in you as it was in Christ Jesus. Let the mind, let, let, let you have this mind that you put others before yourself. And this is a, this is kind of a drum that needs to be beat extremely loudly in our current state. Um, and we'll get into more of this as we go. But this selfless attitude is so foreign in our world, it, it, it is strange when you come across somebody that's selfless. It really is. And, and we'll flesh that out more as we go. And we don't even realize it. It's like a fish being in water. We've all used this example. Does a fish submerged in a pond know it's wet? I think we are so submerged in a selfish culture that we can be selfish 
and not realize it. Because you can always find somebody more selfish than you. That's not hard to do at all. So we're going to flesh that out as we go. We're going to see more of that. Um, so he says, let this mind, that's the mind, the selfless mind, put others as better than yourself. And we have the great example in Christ Jesus. And now, watch him lay out. This is Paul's going to lay out the significance of that. So, he, in other words, he's saying it basically like this. Don't do it because there was this great man that came and set a good example. Okay, we'll talk about that. Don't do it because it will make your life better. Don't be selfless because that's going to give you a better life. Don't be selfless because in your marriage because that's going to give you a better marriage. It will, but that's not the reason you do it. Don't be selfless with your kids because that's going to make better kids. It will, but here's the ultimate reason that we're going to do it. It's because Jesus is more than all of that, and that's the reason we should be selfless. So look at the next four verses. We're actually going to see the, the both natures of Jesus laid out here. We're going to see his divine nature and his human nature here in just a few sentences. So verse 6, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That is one, not even a complete sentence there. One verse that is loaded with theology. Jesus, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. There is only one way you can be equal with the Almighty. And that is to be Him. Right? We're talking about God the Son here. Jesus was a partaker of the divine nature. No created being could ever be considered equal with God. And when you really, if you really start to think about that, that's absurd. Here you have God, everlasting, from before time began to after time will end. He is there. He is the Almighty. And He creates this thing, this being, whatever it is, and all of a sudden that is equal? That's absurd. That's insane, but that there are people who believe that. And I know this because I was one of them at one point. I was taught that Jesus was created. I was taught that Jesus was equal with God, but he wasn't God. That's, that's an impossibility. Not an angel, not a man, nor any other creature. There was one who tried it. He tried to make himself equal with God. You may be familiar with him. His name is Satan. And it's not going real well for him. He was cast out of heaven because of it. And he will spend... There is a place of hell fire that was actually created for him. And he will be there. And he will spend eternity there. You cannot be equal with God. So when Jesus... When, when Paul here says... When the Holy Spirit here says... He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. That means he is God. He is God the Son. What makes him different is... He became flesh. So we're going to see that. So Jesus is divine. Even as he became a man, he is, was still divine. And I'm going to read a few verses just in case you question this or just in case you know somebody that does. Of course, 
the most obvious one is John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And, of course, you read down in verse 14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It's talking about Christ. Jesus is the Word. And it says the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And in case there's any confusion about who that is or what exactly his position is, read on. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. Jesus is the creator, and it's okay to say that. It says all things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made that makes him the maker. Jesus, God. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, verse 15. He, talking about Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. The invisible God. God is a spirit, but he takes on human flesh so that we have something, someone that we can actually see. And it gives us a tangible reality of God, but he is the image of the invisible God. And then look at verse 16. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. Every angel in the heavens was created by Jesus. Satan was created by Jesus. His demons were created by Jesus. And guess what? They're under his dominion. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. And he was before all things, and he, cons- he contains or sustains all things. Turn just right on chapter 2, verse 9 in Colossians. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. All the fullness of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit is dwell. You can. It's in Christ. It's in His person. He comes down so that we can see it. And then we'll, one more. Let's look at Hebrews, chapter one. Hebrews one verse three. Who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person. And upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Skip down to verse 6. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire? But to the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever a scepter of righteousness, is the scepter of your kingdom. Your throne, O God, Jesus has the throne. He is on the throne. And here he says, O God, who is Jesus? He's God. He's God, the son. He's God almighty. And it's important that we understand that. As we turn back to Philippians, it's important that we understand that because who you see Christ is, is everything with how you serve him. 
Understanding who he is is how you are allowed and how you are commanded to serve him and how you are empowered to serve him. So Philippians 2, back now back to verse 7. But made himself of no reputation. Now we're going to see the humanity. Now we're going to, so we see the divinity, the divine nature, the godly nature of Jesus in verse 6. Now in verse 7 and 8, we're going to see the humanity. But made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. If you read the EFSV, you notice it says he emptied himself. It's important to note here that Jesus did not empty himself of his divine attributes. That's not what it means. When he humbled himself, when he emptied himself, what, he, what it means is he emptied himself of his position, his privilege, his ranking on high. He, he, he made himself of no reputation. He could have arrived, and this is preached a lot and it's very true. He could have arrived with however great of a reputation he wanted. He's God Almighty. Right? He could have had a reputation above any man who ever walked the earth when he came as a man. This was the God man. And I think many of the Jews were expecting that. I think many of the Jews were expecting a great king coming in on a chariot. A huge throne, a golden throne, an entourage, right? When kings traveled in those days, they didn't travel alone. They didn't travel with lowly fishermen. They had a guard. They had a household guard. And the bigger the household guard, the more powerful the king. That was just common in that time. Jesus shows up on a donkey with some fishermen. They did carry swords. They were not trained how to use them. They were not household guard. They were not a huge army coming in. He didn't have an entourage escorting him. He came lowly. He could have arrived with however reputation he want, but he chose no reputation. He chose to be ushered in only by the lowly shepherds and the sheep that they kept. And then more than that, so that's how he arrived, and then more than that, he continued his position on this earth as that of a servant. He chose hardship when he came. He was not wealthy. He was not raised a wealthy child. He was raised poor. No doubt there was hunger in their home. There was hunger in most Jewish homes at that time. They were severely suppressed by the Romans. If they did make a good crop, they took most of it. So he no doubt experienced hunger, real hunger that we haven't experienced. He experienced difficulty in work. He was a carpenter. We have lots of carpenters in here, and I bet I can ask each one of them if everything went well last week. They're going to go, no, I've done construction work. You don't go very far into building something until something goes wrong. A tool breaks, 
board splinters when it's not supposed to. Lots of things can happen. Same thing with Jesus. He experienced hardship. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He experienced death from a human standpoint. No doubt there were loved ones died around him. He saw his mom deal with pain in childbirth later with his siblings, right? He was acquainted with grief. He chose that. He emptied himself. He humiliated himself into that lifestyle. And then the lowest state of his humiliation, of course, was when he submitted to death on the cross. He submitted to death. He did not have to die. He could have chose not to die. But he did. Matter of fact, he laid down his life. He said, no one takes it from me, but I lay down, lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down and I have power to take it up again. This command I have received from my Father. Jesus laid down his life. He gave it up. And he was human. Make no mistake. He felt the pain. He felt the hunger. He felt the grief. He felt all of those things. Some things that don't even think about. His mother was still alive. Do you think she wasn't experiencing grief when he was going through that? He experienced that emotion. All of those emotions were real, and he was doing it by choice. And yet, he still suffered that humiliation of dying, the death of a thief. The perfect divine creator of the universe died on a cross. Dylan has a, has a spoken word that's one of my favorite ones he's ever done, where he talks about the creative nature of Christ when he was going through the passion, when he was going through the crucifixion and thinking about things like the tree that he was nailed to, he caused to grow. The men that were spitting on them, he's the one that gave them the saliva glands to make it. And yet he chose to be humiliated enough to submit to all of that as a man. And then we look back at now we go to verse 9. And we go back to the exalted nature of Christ. Therefore, therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. Therefore, why? Why? Because Jesus showed great humility because he was the great divine servant that humbled himself on the cross. Psalm 138.6 says, Though the Lord is on high, yet he regards the lowly, but the proud he knows from afar. Remember, we have been given the example here of how to live. And going back to verse 3, let nothing be done of selfish ambition. And this is where I, as I was studying this, and I thought about our country's current state. And if you haven't heard, I'm sure you have. Roe versus Wade was overturned on Friday. And if you're on social media, you've probably seen a variety of reactions to that. Um, and it's really interesting to see those. It has revealed some people's hearts that otherwise may not have been revealed. And there are some people 
that are extremely upset with this decision. And so I was, it's just kind of hard to, to gather the why. Why are people so upset about, about the reversal of Roe versus Wade? Why are people so upset that they aren't allowed to kill a baby in the womb? And really it goes down to one thing other than Satan and his work in the world, but it's selfishness. Selfishness. This has got, if it's not, it it would amaze me. This has got to be the most selfish culture in the history of the world. It's certainly the most selfish culture we've had in the history of the United States. It's just gotten more and more and more selfish. I was listening to Todd Friel the other day, and he said, we have a lot of autonomous bodies running around who feel the right to do anything that makes them happy. Have you guys heard of that? Do whatever whatever makes you happy. It doesn't matter as long as you're happy. You can sin all you want as long as you're happy. Now, there's so much in that. First off, sin brings happiness for a fleeting season. It will not make you happy. It will not fulfill ever. So that's a terrible statement to make. But the other thing is, when did, we, when did being happy become more important than anything else? I want a job that makes me happy. There's a lot of people right now without jobs because they can't find one that makes them happy. I want a spouse that makes me happy. There's a lot of people right now that are on their third or fourth spouse because the first three, first four, first five didn't make them happy. I want a house that makes me happy. I want a church that makes me happy. And I, as I had... had this all prepared, and when I laid down last night, or this morning, like at 12.30, all of a sudden it's come to me, this suggestion that I thought is very practical. Young people, old people, but especially young people, listen to me. First off, seek to serve God first, and others second, and get yourself out of the way. Forget about your happiness. But then I thought about, very practically, looking for a job. Maybe rather than looking for a job that makes you happy, seek a job in which you can bring joy to others. There's a novel idea. I want to do this job because I can help people. I want to do this job because I can bring stabilities to somebody's life. And whatever job it is, this can be true. Right? You can be a construction business, and the reason I think GKP has been so successful is because they're just staying true to their word, and they're helping people. People need work done, and all of a sudden, here's a company that will do it. And they'll do it to the glory of God. As a teacher... That should be my driving force other than serving God. What? Helping people. I can, t- I can see these kids and I can see their need for lots of things, especially a, a godly figure in their life, and I can strive to help them. And I can find joy in their joy. Seek that. When you think about a job, don't think of one that makes you happy. Think of one that you can bring joy to others. How about in a spouse? 
Rather than seeking a spouse that makes you happy, seek someone who you want to bring joy to. Above all others. Above yourself. Find somebody who you want to bring joy to above yourself. And if you're already married, seek to bring joy to your spouse. Don't look for happiness in your marriage. Seek to bring your spouse happiness in your marriage. Don't focus on your own happiness so much. Ask yourself how you can bring joy to someone else in your church, in your home, in your job, in all of those things. Seek to bring joy to others. And the only joy, as Christians, we know this, the only true joy that you can have is in Christ. So how are you going to bring joy in your job? You're going to bring Christ with you. How are you going to bring joy in a classroom? I'm going to bring Christ with me. How am I going to bring joy in my marriage? Obviously, Christ has to be there. It's a union of three. And in doing that, you may have to humble yourself. You may have to realize I've been doing it wrong. I've been seeking it wrong. You may have to realize my happiness may have to take a back burner. But Matthew 23:11 says whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. That's how God operates. That's why Jesus was not beating his own drum. He was praising the Father constantly. Why? Because he had humbled himself. And so since Jesus humbled himself, now he has a name. He has a name that's above all other names. It's greater than any other name ever in the history of the world or ever that will come. Jesus has that name. Now let's think about this. We need to apply this statement that Jesus' name is above all names. We need to apply this statement to our lives. Bodie Bauckham said this. He said that, We believe that God really needs, what God really needs is for us to be powerful and popular so he can use our name to get the gospel out. And maybe we don't believe that exactly. Maybe maybe we don't really believe that's what God needs, but the truth is that's what we may want. And so many preachers and writers and musicians are looking to get their name, a name for themselves. But God already has a name. And it's above every name. A name that is so popular. Look at verse 10. A name that is so popular that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, and it's only at the name. That's all that's required to bring this bowing. Vodi finished his statement with, if God already has the name that is above every name, what makes you think he needs yours? Man. He would also say, if you can't say amen, say ouch. Right? He didn't say that then, but he would. This is where it gets real. 
We quote it a lot, right? We hear it quoted a lot. Jesus is above every name. He's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. We all say it. But how do we, this is how we apply it. You can talk about it all you want, but until my name is forgotten, until I desire my name to be forgotten, I'm not applying it. I'm not truly believing it 100% until I really want my name to be nothing. Oh, that I would have this attitude. That I would have the attitude that I would be forgotten and Jesus would be remembered. Oh, that I could humble myself that way. I remember thinking this when Philip passed away. Philip was a member of our church, very faithful member. Those of you that were here know him and know know that to be true. He was so selfless and he cared absolutely nothing about his name. And I think I was having a conversation with Paul because he didn't have children. He wasn't married. I think he was in his 40s, right at 40. And he passed away from COVID. And it was kind of like, who's going to remember him? And how, that's how he wanted it. He was known in heaven. He was known in heaven. He would go. We found out after it had been going on for months or maybe years. He was going to nursing homes and playing hymns. He would just go. He wouldn't tell anybody. He wasn't ever beating his own drum or tooting his own horn. He did not do that. He just served the body of Christ in the way that God had gifted him. And he wanted absolutely no credit for it. He humbled himself, and I promise you right now, he's exalted. Oh, to have that attitude. For preachers to have that attitude. For musicians, for writers, for whatever it is that you do in all of our jobs, for us to have the attitude that I would be forgotten, but Christ would be remembered. That I would be forgotten, but Christ would be exalted. That's what it means for Jesus to have a name above all names. And those two verses, those last two verses, they once again point to the divinity of Christ, the authority of Christ and the power of Christ. All shall bow. All. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, in heaven. That means all the spirit realm will bow to him, the angels and demons alike. The angels do it already. They know who he is. They praise who he is. They fly around repeating it over and over. They already bow to him. The demons will. As sure as it hap- as, as sure as Christ is risen, the demons will bow to him. Every single one of them, Satan and his minions, will bow to him. On earth, every single person who is alive at that time will bow their knee to this king. The question we have to ask now is, have you bowed willingly to Jesus? Will you bow to him today? Will you kneel to him today? Have you believed on the Lord Jesus and bowed your knee and bowed your heart to him? If not, today is that day. He is worthy. He does not have to ask you. 
He does not have to beg you. He has commanded you to repent. He has commanded you to bow to him. And he has that right because he's the one who created you. He has given you life. He can take it away. And today is the day. Because if you bow to him, if you will come to him, if you'll bow your heart to him, he is a loving creator. He is a loving Savior, and He has a loving Father, and they will bring you in and accept you with open arms. And you will be forgiven for all that you have done against Him. And make no mistake, you have sinned against Him. Every time you have sinned, it is against Christ. And He will forgive you for that. Absolutely he will, and he will love you, and he will erase it. It says, as far as the east from the west, your sins will be forgiven. He will not bring them up. He will not throw them in your face. They are gone. Even the future sins that you will commit, they are gone. Why? Because he can. Because he did it. He did the work. He received the punishment. He took the wrath on your behalf, but you have to bow to him. You have to come to him. And if you don't do that now willingly, you will at one point do it. It says, and under the earth, those who have died and are buried, their bodies will be brought forth for the purpose of them physically bowing to the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings. Those who die in unbelief will bow to Christ because his name is that powerful. He will reveal himself to them and it will be too late for repentance, but they will bow because he is that powerful. His name is above all names. And so that's the plea today from me. I can plead with you, but Jesus has commanded you to repent. In verse 12 and 13 says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So now he shifts it back. He's been describing Christ. Here's why you do these things, because Christ is worthy. Here's why you do these things, because he was humble. Here's why you do these things, because now he has been exalted above all names. And so here it is, back to you. What do we do with that? How do we go forward? Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, I have to put this in there. I have to explain something here. Because I've heard this verse misused. In a, legal, in a legalistic way, I've heard it said, see... See, right there, you have to work out your salvation. You have to work for your salvation. It says it right there. Okay. Um, I think Caleb taught on hermeneutics last week. I was not here. But I'm sure if he taught on hermeneutics, he probably at some point mentioned context. Because context is king when it comes to interpreting the scriptures. Context is king when it comes to understanding what it says, and this is not a hard one, okay? Because look at verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. The next verse explains it very well. You're going to work out your own salvation, huh? But who's doing that work? God. 
So I, I've even heard it explained this way, and I think it's a good il- illustration. If you have kids, those of you that have young children, do they ever want to help you with your job, whatever's going on? You're cooking in the kitchen, they want to help. You're building something outside, they want to help. They're a lot of help, aren't they? Don't worry if you have young children. As they get older, they actually do become a lot of help. Faith uh, bailed me out yesterday. We was in a mess, but that's another story. When they get older, it is great. But when they're young, they, they aren't a lot of help. But they absolutely love to work with you. That's how our work is in the Lord. We aren't a lot of help. Matter of fact, we get in the way quite a bit. But God allows us to participate in his work. And he does it through us. And when, the, when it's the most effective is when we get completely out of the way and he works completely through us. He's doing the work and we're the hands and feet, right? That's how our salvation is worked out in this life. Salvation is provided by Christ as a gift. And then it's worked out through our life. Our sanctification is worked out through our life through him working in us. He's still doing the work. Everything we do in working on our salvation is God working through us. And why? Why? Why did he save you? Why does he work through you? Why does he choose you to go here and do this? Why does he choose you in this particular gifting, in this particular area that you are working in? Why? Right there at the end of verse 13, both to will and to do For his good pleasure. Why does he do it? Because it's for his good pleasure. And because he is perfect and because he is divine and all everything is good within him, when something is working for his good pleasure, it is good. It is perfect. That his good pleasure is to exalt Christ, to exalt this amazing divine servant and savior. And his good pleasure is to ensure that the world knows his name is exalted above all and that his gospel is the power of God to salvation. That's our job. And that's our calling. And so just to recap, we're called to be servants. We're called to be selfless. We're called to do that because Jesus was that. We're called to humble ourselves because Jesus humbled himself. And we're called to exalt Christ because he's worthy and he has a name above all names. Let us pray for that kind of an attitude. Let us pray for that kind of an action in our lives as we go forward. As we, as we deal with the people who are so adamantly bent on sin in this world. As we see that revealed more and more, let us pray that we would be humble in approaching them, but yet we would be bold in proclaiming the name above all names. We do not have to cower. We do not have to back down. You do not have to sugarcoat what is truth. But we do have to be humble. We're called to be humble 
as we bring this truth of the gospel, as we bring the truth of sin in people's lives and the forgiveness of that sin. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again. Lord, I thank you again for um, a great decision that was made in our country. And I pray, Lord, that we would be salt and light in the earth in the things to come after that. God, I pray mostly that we would seek to glorify you in what we say and the conversations that we have, that we would think about, that we would strive, that we would want to honor you, that it wouldn't be about us, that it would be about you, your goodness and your mercy. And that more people through this would see that. More people would see your mercy, see your grace as a result of all things that are going on that seem chaotic in our country, that seem chaotic in our world, but we know that you are in control, that you are guiding this and weaving this together for your glory. Let us not forget that. In Jesus' name, amen.